Well, hello and welcome to this uh, unusual episode of the Adoption Fostering Podcast. And this is a partner piece with another episode that we're doing uh, with Scott, myself and Ruth Whiteside. And we're talking about parental experience, and kind of a school perspective on exclusion. But today I'm really pleased to be speaking to Sarah Martin-Denham, who is someone I've known for a lot of years, a keen hockey player um, amongst many other things, but I'll let you introduce yourself. Um, so welcome to the podcast, Sarah. It's lovely to speak to you. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm absolutely delighted to be asked and to be here. It's very exciting. Excellent. So, yes. So, could you so, just make sense of who you are? And because I know you've got very sort of specific um, specialisms in relation to school and education and young people. So, make sense of that for people who are listening. Okay, so um, I trained as a primary school teacher and I did that for a number of years. But my current role is I'm Associate Professor of Current Education at University of Sunderland, newly appointed in that role. Um, I train SENCOs, so I'm a programme leader for the National Award, the, uh -huh. that qualification for SENCOs, and I mainly lead research. So I've always been really interested in voice and I think in some research, often voices of look, particularly voice of children and parents, which has kind of been always been my focus. Yeah. My interest in school exclusions kind of comes from challenges as a child myself um, with schooling and my interest in, in how we can have a better system that kind of meets the needs of all children. Yeah. And thinking about whether, you know, I know there's a lot of policy drive for children to be in mainstream school, but for all children, it's just not the right fit. So my research, to, to better understand that and get a really clear insight into it, I felt that actually going to children and young people themselves and their parents was really important. So that's kind of been my focus since 2018. So right. I'm in kind of the fourth year of that now, various projects, but increasingly voice work with children in a way that they want to articulate their voice as well. So not through... Sometimes through a traditional conversation you might have, but yeah. through the creative arts, using different ways for them to think and reflect and kind of come to realisation themselves about the reasons why they couldn't couldn't thrive in mainstream school and trying to get underneath what we have, could actually be doing better. What could we do? Schools work really hard. Schools have lots of pressures, but what could we all do to make hmm. children happier in school? So can I ask you sort of a, a bigger question then, um, thinking about the children and young people who become or find themselves excluded, is there themes around sort of those children's backgrounds, maybe specific uh, issues that they're facing as individuals, or maybe some of that SEN stuff is that, I mean, it, I don't want to, will you tell me, is there themes or is it just whoever? So it's very complicated. As we you know, as with any children, their histories are all very different. Their their circumstances, their lived experience is very different. There are some um, common threads. So I've done twelve publications on school exclusion. Right. For my PhD, I've just had to analyse them as a body of work, which has been torturous. But actually, <laughs> as much as I was stamping my feet all the way through, it has given me kind of a clearer understanding of what the the main protective and risk factors are around school exclusion. So there is a perception often that it's parental blame. So it's something around parents can't parent and, and that's why children can't, can't thrive in school. It's much more complex than that. I mean, from my original study I did, the vast majority of parents were in professional roles, were working. 
and it's layered so there's, there's things like i i absolutely know the main protective factor for school exclusion is relationships and connections so having a positive relationship and connection in school from the offset actually before you even get to school as part of that transition process so having the relationships and actually having a staff workforce that understand child development that understand families and adversities and the impact of of trauma and loss for example on children so it is complicated cases are very different reasons Mm. for exclusions are very different but having knowledgeable staff who are well trained and intervene early is really important in kind of intervening to prevent that future exclusion from school. So does that mean, I mean, sort of flipping that answer really is saying that actually when parents struggle to have positive relationships, when, and there can be a whole host of reasons why people don't, that then sort of increases the risk of exclusion when children's behaviour sort of falls out of these quite, you know, quite narrow tracks that we're expecting of them. So, but in relation to the the children themselves, are there any themes about, you know, can we say children with uh, SEN, children from sort of complicated circumstances? Is is that a case or is that just me sort of stereotyping? No, they're more likely to get excluded, I think. But but my research has shown that it's not so much adversities at home that are causing the exclusion, but coping in mainstream schools with the pressures on testing, pressures on class sizes. So class sizes are getting bigger. And we particularly notice this as children move from primary education to secondary. So in primary education, you'll know children have um, a lot of stability because of the kind of the the function and structure of primary schools where they have a a consistent class teacher, you would hope, or or support staff in there. Whereas for secondary school, you could have 15 different teachers in a week and you're moving a lot. You're moving around the building a lot. So um, class sizes, environments or noises, lighting, other children, um, victimization as well. So children who aren't just are because of because of often unmet needs or unidentified disabilities are having to cope in an environment which they just find impossible to navigate. Mm. Um, And because of that, because they can't cope and they can't manage, they they have behaviors, of course, they have behaviors which if the teachers aren't knowledgeable and well-trained um, and able and have the resources in schools to respond to those needs, they escalate, don't they? So, as, as we know with all children, unmet yeah. needs causes escalations in behaviours. Yeah. And when they escalate, they're more likely then to be removed to isolation, which escalates behaviours, which ultimately means they're excluded. So, yeah, it's very, very complex. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's the difficulty of becoming an expert on something is that the answer is usually it's complicated, isn't it? That's the Yeah. And I think there's a big pressure from um we know that early identification, as you know in your line of work as well, is so important, prevention, early identification. But the pressure on services at the moment is so high. We've got some children in some local areas waiting three to four years for an assessment for autism, for example. So these children in the meantime. Are trying to trying to thrive in school, but actually, nobody has the full kind of understanding of what their needs are and how best to meet them. Mm. So the research, I mean, you've done as you say since twenty eighteen, you've been doing a lot of research and a lot of projects specifically around this area. And um, I know that you've got some research at the moment. You've actually given us some audio clips, but tell us about the voices of children and 
what are children and young people saying about exclusion? Because I guess that's, I see a lot of it on, I see a lot of furore on Twitter about parents and carers and schools and, you know, people like Tom Bennett, who's got an opinion about school behaviour, I'm sure. Well, yeah, we'll not, get, we'll not talk about Tom Bonnet. Um, Bennett. Um, so what are children and young people saying? What are, what, you know, what are they articulating? Do you know what has really surprised me from the start is I thought going in, not knowing the children directly, I'm external. um, And I thought they would find it hard to share and articulate the reasons why they find school hard, but actually they don't. And everything they say is is so well put and and you can see that. So one one example might be... um, I just found the work too hard. I asked for help and I put my hand up, but the teacher didn't get round to me. And also saying, but I know why, because the teacher has lots of other children in the class. So an appreciation that actually, this is why they can't help me, but I really need the help. So I can't do the work. And when they can't do the work, they panic. And when they panic, they have a behaviour, so then they're going to point. So they'll say things like, it's the point system. So schools where there's like an escalation, I just so you might get. Um, if you get one sanction, that's that might be a little bit of a warning or a nod. But if you get then go on and get more, you can end up in a situation where you can't get back out of that yeah. and you're going to be removed from classrooms. So they're through their voices. I think it's finding the way also some children aren't comfortable with a conversation. So you've got to take you've got to take creative work, creative methods, which is the creative arts focus I've had in the last year has been really positive in helping them think about why they couldn't manage a mainstream school. Because bear in mind, some of these children are expected to go back into mainstream school and find that actually quite terrifying. But what's what's kind of um, quite striking is when you're with them, you can see the realisations in their brains happening. So they'll, they'll be writing something. So, for example, yesterday I was, I was in a school and we were talking about um, we've got a conference on the 25th of November, a child-led conference of the children are setting the agenda. And I was like, what would you like to say to the teachers who taught you? What would have helped you? And then they'll go, they just needed to listen. They don't have time to listen in school and they needed time to listen to me. If they'd had time to listen to me, I could have told them that I couldn't stand the noise. And you think it's that that simple and straightforward. I know it's, it's not easy for schools to not have noisy environments, but actually we do know schools are under a lot of pressure and there's a lot of curriculum pressures. And we've, of course, we've had COVID. So children haven't consistently, not all children have been consistently in school for the last few years. So I think lots of children feel like they're playing catch up, the teachers are playing catch up. And the, so I suppose that would put a squeeze possibly on time mm. to listen to children. Like, where is that in the school day? Yeah. Um, and who does that? Who is the person who does that listening? Because every one of the children I'm working with at the moment, I'm currently working with about 30 children, is saying that time's really important and listening's really important and feeling feeling like when you're in a classroom environment that you can't cope, somebody will understand why that is. So they'll go, I can see they're becoming upset. So let's try this instead. So yeah, they're really good at articulating what the what the problems are. And is that a common theme that it's children sort of articulating an unmet need or a or or an inner something going on inside that they then they can't articulate or don't feel able to or they're not being listened to. 
and then that sort of precipitating behavior that that puts them on a trajectory towards exclusion yeah and i think sometimes it's expecting children in schools to do things that are beyond their abilities because of disabilities so expecting children well there's two things there's expecting children to do things because of disabilities and expecting them to appear visually in particular ways with uniform expectations that they can't do because of economic reasons in schools so having to wear particular uniform particular branded uniform a particular shade of gray a particular shoe when the family doesn't have the the funding and the resource to do that i mean it sounds bizarre to even be saying that doesn't it that's a reason why you can be excluded from school but that's that um, i mean i have to stop you there because i think so are you saying you're working with children who've been excluded because they've not met the met, not met the uniform requirements yeah so there was one um this this was a young person i spoke to um not so long ago actually heard that the, the sole reason she was excluded from school was she had an issue with um with um wearing like a, like a medical reason for why she couldn't wear particular footwear so she needed to wear trainers but you can buy trainers that look like school shoes really yeah. the black and that was the reason that she was excluded for non for not conforming to uniform expectations and when i met her i was like why is this why is this young person not in school i couldn't like talking to her really clever really articulate more you know the vast majority of them you're blown away by their kind of by how well they can articulate what they need these these are clever children but for for various reasons they can't be but for her particular reason was shoes and then she was told she was taken and she was told she had some lost property shoes which she did not want to wear because she knew she was going to be uncomfortable and there's someone else's shoes i mean i wouldn't particularly like to wear someone else's shoes i suppose (laughs) No. no um yeah and that's why she was no longer allowed back to that school. That was a permanent exclusion. I, I mean, I can't believe. I mean, I, I have. I believe you. I believe you. But I'm like struggling to actually believe that that is yeah. happening. It feels like from a different time, where you know that a child who's got you know a genuine medical reason why they can't wear a specific shoe, but then can't necessarily afford a sh- something that then meets the requirements, and then just. I don't know how can a school justify that because I thought isn't exclusion meant to be sort of this the ultimate sanction, saying that you cannot return to this school, you we cannot we cannot educate you, you are not complying, and we sort of get that, but that doesn't sound like this story. Is there there's more lots, to it? Is there something you're not telling us? <laughs> no, because I honestly because there's been other examples where I, I always have a safe adult in the room. And there was um, a conversation, this was part of the original study that I did back in 2018. Um, And a child was, we were sat talking to this young person and and they were reflecting on how they hadn't been in school, mainstream school for two and a half years because they'd been sent home, they'd been excluded, but remained on school roll for two and a half years. And they were sent home with um, a computer in the back of the car with a teacher, driven home and dropped off. and I'm like, so for two and a half years, you were sent home. And me, and, and I'm looking at, it's actually, it was actually the head teacher in the room, thinking, that can't be right. And the child was 11, and both parents worked, um, had to work. So the child was at home at the age of 11, which for me, my safeguarding brain was thinking, well, hang on a minute, how can we have a child alone? Anyway, 
in the conversation, the child then turned around to me and I, I get goosebumps and said, is that why I can't read? Is that why I struggled with writing and reading? Because I wasn't in school for two and a half years. And it's really hard. I'll be in, in like a space with a young person who's having this kind of realisation that the reason that they can't do the things they can do now is they've missed two and a half years of school. Um, and that, that, that does happen, illegal exclusions like that do happen. And I, I, I struggle to understand how we can have that happening when there's nobody then in your line of work that, that you do, yeah. you heard that an 11 year old child was at home all day on their own, no other siblings in the household. That, that would be a massive concern, but then I suppose it's, 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 it's allowed oh, yeah. to happen. Like, why is that child not on someone's like, radar? radar? Yeah. That, yeah. I mean, that, yeah, we maybe need to talk about that afterwards. Um, maybe we need to talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a conversation <laughs> and call of duty for social workers somewhere. Um, you've um, kindly lent us some of, well, actually, well, before that, you mentioned you've got a conference coming up on the 25th of October. Is that right? It's November and it's oh, right. free. Okay. Yeah. And it's um the children are setting the agenda. So it's it, I love this. So a lot of my work, all of my work has voice all over it. And it's um it was the original study was funded by Together for Children, who have been amazing. And it's got voice everywhere. But I still although the, the words are written down, I still felt that the children weren't in control. The children weren't really visible. So I decided this child-led conference, the children would set the agenda. So this is about 25, 30 children working who are five to 16 in a, in, in a local um, alternative provision or pupil referral unit, as they were known, um, putting together audio and video clips to show at this conference to, to tell the teachers and to tell social workers, health professionals, what they want them to talk about. So, so yeah, that's the... That's conference at the um, University of Sunderland on the twenty fifth of November. Right. Very exciting. That unfortunately falls with our on the day of our adoption fostering podcast. So please don't go to that. Oh, um, no, yeah. that's a shame. But I'm sure we, you know, different cohort of people. So exactly. people can go to the University of Sunderland and they'll be able to find out about that. And um, you kindly gave me a couple of um, audio clips, really, just the voices of children. Uh, well, yeah, children. Yeah. Um, can you sort of, um, we'll play them and I'll sort of, I'll insert the first one here, which is the voice of uh, a young girl and the artwork that we've got. We're going to use the artwork as the podcast covers. Tell me about this. This seems exceptional. Well, my idea was for like, obviously, like this is like my, like me personally, because yeah. it's all bright on the inside. But I feel like the society we're in recently is like really dark and gloomy. Like everything's just turned a bit dull, but it's like, it's like the colour's trying to burst through. Like it's like there's still hope there. For my bubble, like a circle, like as if like this is my my bubble, my bright bubble. And is it protective your bright bubble? Is yeah, it that's why it's big and it's like coming through. Like even though there's darkness, it's still coming through. Like here and like so. coming out. Yeah. So um, what's important to say firstly is I have full like approval to share these. Yeah. So the children parents have given consent for, for this to be shared. Um, so this was part of a project which was with four artists and the, the children were asked to, to show what brought them joy and also to reflect on, on life really and things that mattered to them. So this particular young person was 15 and was in an alternative provision school 
and just couldn't manage, just couldn't manage in mainstream education. Um, her words, she said to me, I don't think it's on that clip, clip out, said, I just wasn't built for it. Just couldn't cope with mm. the um, the number of children, the, the busyness of secondary education, the 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 need for help, so the need for support with learning and and kind of social emotional mental health, particularly because of the size of the school and the resource, um, just didn't there wasn't access to that in the school. So I. When I first met this young person, we were sat chatting about the artwork, which I, I know you're going to share as well, Al. And I looked at the artwork and it, it looked incredible, but her description of it, yeah, my brain was just, it's a really powerful description of, of the world. Bear in mind, this was COVID time. So it was one of our first um, back together periods. So um had been away from school for some time, but the descriptions in that particular piece really showed that how she viewed herself in place of the world, I think, was my interpretation. Yeah. yeah that's, I mean, it, well, it is a fantastic piece of art and it's very expressive and it, and her, how she articulates about how she mm. sees herself. And um, there was a second audio clip, which I'll insert here. How could mainstream schools be better? They're just like having like a class just for like the people that need like help, because like when I was at mainstream, like I couldn't didn't have like that support in place. So like I think like a couple of years down the line, I think they might need to start doing that because that's just like everyone's just already getting kicked down all the time. And what do you think you needed help with? Was there anything specific? That you was it the lessons? I think it was like the bigger classes because like there was like thirty odd kids in the school, like in the like class, mm-hmm. and sometimes you had like them same people like all year, and like it was just like really stressful because they just go into like the your next lesson. It's like hard because like my like our. I had to like rely on my sister, like because I couldn't. I was like, I can't do this. But like coming here, like they've got all like the support in place, smaller classes. So like I think if they had some like that and like mainstreams, like it would be much better. I mean, it's heart rending, really. Just his the struggles he has within the school and, you know, just his sister's the person who's getting him through it. And tell me a little bit about, you know, him and his story. Yeah, so, so this young person's actually been involved in a couple of my projects. And as with most of these children you meet, you struggle to get your head around um, why their needs couldn't be met in a mainstream school to, to more of an extent than it seems they were. So this particular young person um, really struggled with class sizes. So lots of people in one space and being able to kind of to cope, really, I suppose is the word, to cope in an environment that's got lots of children and also people bullying. So other children not being kind and that not being acted upon, he perceived it was not acted upon well enough by the school. 
And this person has remained outside of mainstream education as well. And at this point in, you know, same age is unlikely to return, won't return back to mainstream school, mm. but very, again, very articulate about what was needed. The particular needs of that young person mean that they, they need a very safe environment. And for some children, just mainstream school does not feel safe, mm. particularly so, where there is bullying happening. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at the news today in the northeast, and um, there's there's a public inquiry about a 12 year old who um, committed suicide because of bullying in school. And it's actually the school that one of my children went to, um, which is heartrending in the extreme. But I was thinking about the young this young man, um, and so was it a case then that there's an element of self, of sabotage that actually because those his needs weren't being met that he he found himself sort of was it knowingly sabotaging and creating an environment where he was excluded or was it just sort of a re reactionary behavior i think lot i think a lot of the children i've spoken to i think they hit a breaking point al right i think i think they try they try and cope and they try and get on and the the, the try they try their absolute best but things come to a head. I think going, I mean, we would find it hard, wouldn't we? Waking up every day, having to go to a work environment where we didn't feel safe and secure and supported, to do that day in and day out. Hmm. When you know you're going into an environment where you are going to become anxious, you're going to become stressed. You're not going to get your needs met, but you're expected still to behave like somebody who doesn't have a disability in that so you don't have autism in that environment so can you please just carry on and get on okay get on with the work it's not it's not realistic and I think for lots of the children I speak to particularly those who end up in isolation booths um there's no way out is that there, 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 there can be an in my original study some children in isolation booths every day for three years of statutory schooling and we're like how again another separate conversation how can we be in a position where we have that where we have children sat in booths and you're not taught always, you're not allowed, you, you know, you, you, your toilet breaks are restricted. You might not be allowed out into the lunch hall at lunchtime in some, in some schools, not all. And that's, that for me is in all the research has been a real concern. Now isolation, the use of isolation has been removed from the new behavior um, and schools guidance, DFE 2022 replaced with removal so you can still remove children, but the word isolation has gone. So it'll be interesting to see how that's interpreted by schools. Um, the good removal spaces, you could argue that's still going to be isolation just by another name, but I'm trying not to be um, negative. It's Cynical, not yeah. <laughs> differently. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I just find the whole thing extremely sad and I, I'm not blaming I think we need to be careful not to be blaming mainstream schools and saying mainstream schools are doing this. They are, everybody's under immense pressure, but we need to find mm. a better way. Well, I guess that was one of my closing questions, really, in that, because I know that the, by the definition, the nature of, you know, your progression to where you are is that you've come through school, you work with schools, you support schools. So you're not, anyone can throw stones at schools. It's an easy target, isn't it? Yeah. So do you find that your that your research and the voices of children is, having a sort of a an influence a positive influence and an impact on how schools and senior leadership teams sort of view the work you know how they respond to children and young people i do think so firstly i'd like to say i think the main impact i'm having which matters most to me is 
with the children, young people I speak to. Mm. I do feel that them feeling like they have a voice and that be voice being shared, they feel like they're getting some kind of power back when often they feel that they've been powerless is really positive. Um, because I also train SENCOs and I teach in a university, you know, where we have teacher training and I'm, I'm able to go into teach training sessions and, and share that I do feel it is permeating. Voice work is important. Listening to children is important, but it is, st- it is still overlooked in in how we teach and meet needs saying to somebody how could we do this better what would help you more and it's just very easy questions but then I suppose it's having the resource to actually yeah do something with that information for me I think what what is quite sad is the number of exclusions that are now happening with four and five year olds so in the northeast we are seeing rises of very very young children permanently excluded from school and pupil referral units for children in in reception and you just part of you just think you've got to step back and think what is happening like my, my, my I, I can't for classes to be to have classes of five or six four-year-olds permanently excluded is where, where where do these children go from that point if you've got a permanent exclusion on your record at the age of four yeah it's a know, long time till you're 18 there's a lot it's a long, long time. Yeah. It's, it's all a of your long life. Time. <laughs> yeah. But I think it is, I think it is trickling down. I know that I'm working um with lots of other people now who want to do more research, more voice. So most days I get requested to come and do some voice work, which is amazing. What I'd love is this the, the um hashtag see me pull up a chair and listen. I think if we can keep going with that and get more people involved, because I don't think we really we really yet fully understand um, how exclusion impacts long-term. So the long-term impacts of school exclusion on families as well. Siblings, there is no research on the impact of exclusion on siblings. Mm. Very little I've touched on it, but it's things like that. It permeates the whole family. When a child, even without the exclusion, the run up to it, the, the bit before the exclusion, you know, well, it affects was, everybody in the house. I was thinking about the 11-year-old you mentioned who was left at home, and I would have thought that the, I can't imagine that the parents are happy, but maybe in a position where they financially can't, you know, that, that you know, how how do they respond to that? How do they, you know, then you just think there's a lot to unpick there, isn't there, about the the, the re-impact across the, the family community. Um, it's remarkable. People have to work, don't they? Yes. Yeah, it's often missed, isn't it? That you know, pe- bread needs to be put on the table, bills need to be yeah. paid. And I don't want to be cause um, you know problems, but really, if you, if you're being really honest about it, what's the benefit of a, a suspension of a child from school? So, from the children I spoke to, I asked them what they did when they were off, when they were on a suspension, which is like a small. It's not a permanent exclusion. They might be sent yeah. sent away from school for so many days, and they sleep. Or they go on the streets, and if they go on the streets, who's that's a risk, isn't it? Having children, risks yeah. of county lines and all the other things. But actually, what is the benefit of a suspension? It's respite for the school. I think that's what it is. It's what well, it is. It's respite for the school and the children who will be in that class with those behaviours. But actually, it breaks the relationship. It can cause irreparable damage with relationships with school. 
and actually they're, they're going to go back and it's hard for them to go back following that. So, yeah, it's it's a very, very complex. It is. And I think often the voices, the voices that would sort of argue for exclusion and sort of more severe disciplinary would always would rightly focus on the needs of the other children and you 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 kind of but again that's more pressure on schools isn't it and i it is fascinating uh, thank you so much i am um, I, I literally have to dash off so i'm gonna have to apologize but could you send me through the links of the different um of, of where people could access some of your work because i think that anyone who's listening yeah. to this will be definitely be really interested much more in looking at some of the research you've written and i know most of it's public access isn't it it's not yeah, hidden behind yeah, firewalls Sarah, it's been fantastic to speak to you. I really appreciate your time. I know you did this at short notice and you've been dashing around, getting busy between lecturing and being a professor. Well done on being a professor as well. Excellent. It's associate. It's not an actual real one. Not yet. You, you didn't have to say that. It's important. You did not. Well, you'll always, I'm going to change Thanks, you in my Al. contacts to Professor Sarah. There you go. Thanks, Al. Thank you for having me today. Absolute pleasure. Look after yourself. See you soon. Bye-bye. Bye.